Ben. Uh, before I begin, I, I know that it is, it's a matter of some amusement for many of you how often I quote uh, from Tim Keller. Um, some of you have even reported it's a matter of irritation, and for that I'm really, really sorry. Um, except for the fact that you need to know that it, it, it's very much a part of me that I believe that, um, I believe that Tim is one of the most important uh, evangelical and Reformed teacher-preachers alive today. I, I think that's undeniably true for me. Um, and it's okay if you disagree about that. But because I take plagiarism very seriously, I need for you to know that I'm coming to a point in my life where I, I, I can rarely remember what he said and what I've said. The two have actually become coterminous. Uh, and for that reason, I want to tell you, there was about 10 years ago I heard Tim preach from this text. Uh, and I'm borrowing a lot of that outline this morning uh, so that you know that and are aware of that as we move in. Um, but in the interest of being um, you know, fully transparent this morning, I, I just want to tell you that... that uh, my experience of the last few months, I'm sure, has been somewhat like many of yours, uh, and it's just the experience of feeling um, just unwound. Um, and I don't know about how the sea of emotions kind of roll around you, uh, but mine have been wrapped up um, <laughs> with the most amazingly, uh, in, as you look at it, selfish experience of feeling so mad about when all this stuff has been occurring. It's probably about 10 years ago when I kind of flipped in my mind thinking that Christ Pres really needs to be in a new building. About 10 years ago. And I've been looking forward to the summer of 2020 without knowing it was the summer of 2020 for at least that long of a time. Uh, I certainly have devoted, you know, something every single day, oftentimes days in the entirety, to getting us over into that building. And so all of a sudden, we have a worldwide pandemic and a quarantine. Let me tell you what emerges out of this man's you know, cold black heart. Now, God, now's the time you're going to allow this to happen? When all of this effort and all these people have spent all this money, they've invested all this time, now you're allowing this to happen? And as if that wasn't enough. In the last two weeks, we've been presented with um, uh, an unusual amount of societal unrest for an issue that, quite frankly, I believe is vitally important. And I believe there's a national discussion beginning on something that has been very near and dear to my heart. And it surrounds this question of why it is that almost every single African-American friend that I have reports to me that their experience of dealing with societal pressures is different than the one that I have as a white person. I think that's a good conversation to have. I have longed for that conversation, regardless of how you come down on the question and where you feel like who's wrong and who's right and who needs to be supported and who needs to be condemned. I've spent this entire time thinking to myself, this? Now? While we're trying to move into the new building? Now look, I don't know about you, but I watch selfishness come up out of me. And my reaction to that oftentimes is to think to myself, Lord, have you forgotten? Maybe I'm the bad seed. <laughs> Maybe I'm the weakest link. Maybe the reason for all this going on is somehow there's been something, whether in my speech, in my actions, in my mind, I'm believing there's plenty of evidence to, to support it, then I, I, I'm, I'm in the end. I, I'm the one who's made us contrary to God's purposes. You ever feel that way? Well, it turns out that Isaiah 49 knows how you feel. <laughs> Because as soon as we have God delivering these unbelievable promises to the people of God, 
they immediately start to wonder and worry. Because God comes along in the chapter Isaiah 49. I invite you to go back home and read it tonight, this afternoon. God is making these amazing promises to these people. But you have to remember, historically speaking, the people of God were in exile. They were enslaved in Babylon. But God comes down and says, look, don't worry. I am going to come to you and I am going to fashion an international, multiracial people of God that will emanate from what I'm going to do in Jerusalem all the way out until it conquers the entire world. It's an amazing promise. And I have a sense in which the people of God believe that God would do that. And yet in verse 14, we get their response. And my guess is we're going to find ourselves in that response as well. And you'll also find that God's response to their fear is one of the most tender passages that we have in all of Scripture. (laughs) Um, Verses 14 through 16. Let's dive into this under three headings. Number one, I want to look at the fear that God's people have. I want to look at the promise that God delivers to them. And then thirdly, I want to look at the seal God places over uh, uh, that, uh, that whole experience. The first one is to understand this fear. In order to really get this, you have to understand who is talking in verse 14. It says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Well, who is Zion? Well, Zion, we know, was the name that King David had given to this little rise and hill uh, that was in the center of Jerusalem. Uh, it was higher than really the rest of the city, at least the ancient part of the city. And it was the location where King David had raised up the tabernacle uh, and where eventually King Solomon would put the great temple uh, that would rest there. In other words, it dominated the entirety of the Jerusalem skyline. Everyone could see. As a matter of fact, all of their lives, even spiritually so, was done in reference to this place. But over time, the name Zion began to refer to what it was like when God's people gathered. So over and over again, you'll find that whenever the Bible says Zion, it means the people of God as they gather and what they're going through and how they feel. So God's people come together and they stand before him and they're looking and saying, these are wonderful promises, God, but my problem right now is, is that my circumstances are in complete contradiction to what you've said. That's where we are. You've said all these wonderful things, but right now, it is more real to me to see the chaos of Babylon all around me than it is for, you, for me to, to rest in your promises. Isn't that a weird sort of psychological position that we find ourselves in all the time? There's a uniqueness to our, to, to our internal makeup, probably due to the complexity with which God has given us, that on the one hand, we can, we can actually believe something and say, yes, I stand upon that truth. It's, it's what, I, what I build my life upon. And at the same time, have another thought that rises up in me that's kind of like, but Lord, look at the bills. <laughs> but Lord, what happened to my job? <laughs> but Lord, there's no security in our future at all. No one knows what's going to happen with this thing. And both of those things can be on the inside of us at the same time. And the sum result of it is to have those moments where we confess exactly what they're saying in verse 14. God, I feel forsaken. It feels to me, regardless of your promises, like you've forgotten us. Like I'm on the outside. Like this is the end of it all. Look, you got to understand that God's promises 
are, is a, God's promises are lightning bolts that strike down into the very center of our circumstances and invites us to consider the world in the light of those. But so often those things are at war within us. And my guess is you're a little bit like me, that you found these last couple months a little difficult to feel, to get a sense of the, how the Puritans used to say, an experiential grasp over God's actual affection for his people. Because isn't that the ideal? The ideal is that the things that I believe God is saying is true really register inside of my heart. That I can say that, that they're really tr- personally true for me. They've made an impression on me. I sense them and I'm drawing strength off of them. But so often they're, dis- they're, dis- they're disconnected from each other. And here I sit in the middle of it feeling forsaken and feeling forgotten. Every event that comes into our life is interpreted. Have you noticed this? You can't have something happening to you without grasping some kind of sense of its meaning. Every event is interpreted. What has these last three months meant to you? You might look and be like, God, it doesn't seem like anything good can happen to me. Why does the universe somehow feel like it's against me? You feel forsaken. Well, God responds. And that brings me to my second point. The first one I want to look at is what the nature of that fear is. We'll look into that more in the future. But God then comes along and gives them a promise. I actually find it interesting that the first thing that God says is not to shame them. Like, oh, how dare you doubt me? Don't you understand who I am? I'm God. You think that's suffering? I'll give you worse suffering. And that typically that we think, think God is going to sort of deal with this. But instead, instead of shaming them, what God does is he says, I want to introduce to you a truth. I want to give you a metaphor, if you will. And what I want you to do with this metaphor is I want you to take it in and I want you to think about it. I want you to mull it over. I want you to roll this truth around inside of your heart and inside of your mind until something on the inside breaks open And it begins to transform you from the inside out. And you know what that idea is? It's this simple. Ask yourself this question. Can a mommy forget the little infant baby that she's nursing? I want you to take that in. You know, it's a little bit like those cough drops. We're talking about sickness all the time, right? You know, in the wintertime, we all have the little cough drops that are my favorite are the ones that have the sort of gooey, syrupy center in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? You got this terrible cold. You can barely speak. It's like, it's terrible You pop the thing in your mouth, your mouth starts to water because of the flavor of it all. But as you keep on sort of rolling it around inside your mouth, eventually that thing breaks open. And it's just this wonderful moment where that sweet syrup kind of goes down your throat and coats it, and you have this instantaneous sense of relief. Okay, that's the image that I think God wants His people to do. I'm giving you something that I want to roll around inside your head and your heart that eventually is going to break open And bring you sweetness in places that you didn't realize it could be. And here's the image. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Can that happen? And so it's fun to actually take some time to think about that. I don't know. Can a mother forget that? Is that possible? What is it that's going on with a young mommy and her little nursing infant? How does that lay out? Keller came up with a couple thoughts and I came up with a couple thoughts. If you first of all think about it, a mother's connection to her baby is actually a physical connection. 
Men, you don't know what they're talking about unless your wives have explained it to you. But there is a physical sense of knowing that the baby is hungry. I, it was a very weird experience to me to be out uh, at a restaurant. Uh, we got the babysitter, you know, first time out after you've had the child. Uh, and Ginger would be sitting across dinner. We're having a lovely time. We're having a nice conversation for the first time in peace. And all of a sudden, Ginger would kind of look up and say, it's time to feed the baby. And I'm like, oh, okay. Did you get a phone call? How do you know this? Physically, it's uncomfortable, mommies, isn't it? If I don't feed the child. There's a visceral response to knowing that my child needs me and I need to be with him or her. Secondly, there's an emotional element in there. It's not just a physical connection that keeps a mommy connected to her child. We now know, physiologically, that there's all these endorphins that get released inside a mommy while she's feeding. Which means that in that moment, oftentimes, again, once you get through the awkwardness of trying to learn how to do it, oftentimes there's this incredible sense of fulfillment and love and adoration. That I, mean, I would look over at Ginger, she never glowed like she did when she was nursing. It was amazing to watch that emotional connection. Finally, you'll hear people talk about the unconditional love that a mother has for her baby. <laughs> It's not just physical. It's not just emotional. It's actually unconditional. You know, the mommy is the giver of all things. The child is the taker of everything. <laughs> but you know, it occurred to me that the love, it's really not just unconditional love. That doesn't really quite grab it, does it? I would argue that it's not just unconditional. It's actually counter-conditional love. <laughs> In other words, it's not just love that's given to someone who takes all the time. It's love that's given to someone who takes all the time and gives you every reason to stop giving to them. <laughs> no offense, children, but there were times when you weren't all that great to be around. And mommy didn't just give because she loves you unconditionally. She loves you even when you don't deserve it. <laughs> That's the love. You know, we could go on. I've been letting this thing roll around for a few weeks now. Hey, look, but here's the point. God is saying, I want you to take that image into your heart. Roll it around. And realize in the end that that is the way that I feel about you. I am the mommy. And I have you in my arms. And my love for you, if we can talk about God in this sense, is almost physical. It is visceral, God's love for you. He is moved within the inner parts of His emotional life by His people. Because we're created in His image. He's, it's, a, it's a visceral sense of God's need for His people. We also have numerous places in Scripture where we find that His love for His people is absolutely emotional. It's emotional. So much to the point where you get these promises like Zephaniah chapter 3 where God looks and says, there's going to come a day where I rejoice over you with singing. Where I will quiet you with my love. With some of the most sentimental <laughs> You know, beautiful expressions of emotional affection. God gets emotional about the love of his people when, they, when he sees them rejoicing. An unconditional love? That just doesn't describe it. It's not an unconditional love. It is a counter-conditional love that God gives to his people. It's contrary to what we deserve. And it always reminds me of my very favorite J.I. Packer quote uh, from Knowing God. When he says, look, there's a tremendous relief in knowing that God's love for me is utterly realistic. I love that phrase. Based at every point in a prior knowledge of the worst about me. 
so that no discovery of his about me can somehow disillusion him about me as I am so often disillusioned with myself and somehow quench his intention to bless me. Hear what he's saying? God placed his love on us knowing everything that we're capable of, everything that we've done, everything that we're doing, everything that we will do, utterly realistic. And even then, in placing that love on us, he says, I'll do it. Because now, there's nothing that you can do that I'm something like, oh, I can't believe Les did that. His love is counter-conditional for his people. He says, roll that image of that mommy over in your mind. Because you know what? Even if she can forget. Keller brought this out, and I I doubted it, so I went and looked it up, and he was right. Keller makes this point that the Hebrew phrase when it says, even though she may forget you, I will not forget you. The Hebrew actually reads, she will forget you. And it makes me wonder if we're not kind of hedging our bets in that passage. Can a mother forget her child? She will forget you. Because you want to know what's true? Some of us in here have trouble with our mommies. Some of us have struggled with our mothers. We've had conflict with them. And some of you who've even had the best of mothers have had them pass away. So it's as if what God is saying is even the best of mothers will fail you. But you know what? My love for you is indestructible. Because it never fails, it never spoils, and it never dies. It will always be what I have always promised you that you'll have from me. And that is my absolute affection. Can a mother forget a child at her breast? She'll forget, but I won't forget you. In other words, God is looking and saying, have you allowed that truth to be worked around your mind yet? Because if you will, and it cracks open, and that sweet syrup of that knowledge of His affection for you, what it will do is it will begin to transform the way that you deal with each other. Will it not? You'll begin to look very differently at your spouse. You'll look very differently at your own children, at your neighbor, at your cross-racial friends. It'll cause you to look very differently at our police officials and our government people who put themselves on the line every single day. It'll cause you to look very differently at the world around you. And God's saying, that's my intention. And even if today you can't say that you're living in the midst of something like that, it's important for you to know that that is the trajectory where God's headed for you. That's where He wants to lead His people. Are you ready? So here's where we finish, and that's the seal. Because the truth of the matter is, my heart's still not satisfied. (laughs) I can hear all those things and be like, okay, 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 I'll work on that. I'll think about that. That sounds good. But honestly, is there not something, God, that you can give to me that's more tangible? Is there a way of sort of establishing this so that I can know that it's true? It's a little bit of the same thing that an ancient Near Eastern courier would have when they delivered messages from one kingdom to another. You know, obviously, if a king sort of had a message, he would write it down. He would roll it up in a scroll. And in order to authenticate the message, he would take a little hot glob of wax and melted over the fold, and he would take his ring that was completely unique, and he would mash his symbol into that, so that by the time the other king received the message, and he looked at the seal, he knew the message was authentic, because it had the message of the king on that place. In other words, God is looking and saying, I am not only willing to say that I love you, I am also going to seal it. And the way I'm going to seal it is by what you have there in verse 16. Because he says, behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. 
It's really interesting to see what the commentators say about this. On the one hand, one commentator makes the point that you do have ancient Near Eastern sources that show that every now and then slaves would have their master's name tattooed on their palms as a sign of ownership. But there are no examples from any ancient Near Eastern source where a master tattooed their slaves' names on the palms of their hands. But what's fascinating about this is there is a Hebrew word for tattoo. It exists in the Hebrew Bible. That's not the word that's here in Isaiah 49. That word is engraved. And it turns out that's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is pronounced hakak. And it's one of those words that sounds like what it is. Literally, it means to hack at something. In other places, it's used in Bible to show what you do with a hammer and a chisel. And there's one place where it's used to sort of mark off a territory, a land with a hammer and a chisel to know what land is yours. Okay, so now why? Why would Isaiah, why would God want to leave his people with a violent image? We just had this beautiful, lovely image of a mommy with her baby. That's wonderful and tender. But why now are we suddenly talking about hammers and nails? That's a good question. And my wonder is, is that there's not something about the fact that that engraving happens that is a little bit like one of my experiences when I was traveling around with RUF at the end. Right before I took this job, I was on one of my last campus visits. And I had stores at various places on the highways that I would stop at because it was more convenient. And one was a Target in East Alabama. And I was on the phone with Ginger getting whatever orders I was supposed to get from Target that particular time. And uh, I remember... Uh, there was a lady in the aisle next to me who had a child who was making a scene, right? The little girl couldn't have been more than two or three years old, and she was sitting in the basket and she was getting pushed around. <laughs> this mother had this blank expression on her face. And the little girl was just wailing. Ah, I don't understand! But why can't I have it, Mommy? And then she said this. You don't love me. I thought to myself, man, isn't that what we do? The very second that the circumstances turn against us, we look up and we're like, you don't even love me. Have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? Okay, so fast forward a couple hundred years after this text is written. And there sits Jesus in a room with Thomas. And Thomas is doubting. He knows the promises. He's heard it from all the rest of his disciples. But he says, I just don't feel it. And I won't until I can see his hands and I can see his feet and I can put my hand in his side where he was stabbed. And Jesus walks up to Thomas and what does he say? He says, look at my palms. Look at my palms. Because this is the way in which you know. This is the seal. You're worried, Thomas, about feeling forsaken. I was forsaken on the cross. You're worried that you've been forgotten. I will never forget you. Look at the palms. Because Thomas remembered that he would be engraven on his hands, he understood what God's promises were saying to him. Let me ask you a question. How different would we be if we walked out into the midst of this quarantine, however much longer it lasts, how much we entered into this time of difficult conversation with our friends who are of different races? How much of a difference would it make as we move into this new building if we believed that? that God had not forsaken and he had not forgotten his people. Wouldn't that change things? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would lead us into that. Take us, Father, by the hand, as it were. 
Would you grasp us and show us, Father, your love in this time? We have been through so much, and there's so much to do from here on out. But we know that needs to be the center, the comfort that only you can bring your people because of your nail-scarred hands. Lord Jesus, give us a vision of that. Melt that into our hearts this morning. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.